Welcome to JR Out Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance. Um, today, fittingly, because we're, this is the day of remembrance, the Sunday of remembrance, and tomorrow is the anniversary of Kristallnacht, I'm so delighted to be talking to Naomi Lopien about her family's history and legacy, what she has learned, how she has shaped, been shaped by it, and is shaping it now in so many different ways to share with us now, with this generation, with future generations. These are Holocaust stories. These are stories of her wonderful doctor father and what he endured and what shaped him and her mother, the equally wonderful French mother whose story she only learnt later. But we're going to hear all about that now. So welcome, Naomi, to Jair Out Loud and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Judy, for this privilege. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you and to your listeners. Thank you. Naomi, this journey, I, I see what you're doing in your life as a journey. I know now there's been some real journeys as well, and there are emotional journeys all the time. And first of all, coming to terms with your parents' stories as a second generation child of survivors, and then wanting to talk about it, wanting to tell their story, wanting to honour their story. And you've done, you've done it in so many different ways. I found it incredibly moving, including this late, I don't know when you started on the animation of your father's story, but it's not just translating his book, it's animating his words. And it's, it's so direct and so moving. So can you first, before we talk about any journeys you may have undertaken with Rob Rinder, which I know is the latest thing you've done, there's been so many. Oh, I just also want to mention, it's another journey, isn't it, to go all around the country with a child of Nazis who's coming to terms with his past and talking in schools and, and all sorts of places. I want to just go through all your journeys. So Judy, I think journey is the right word. It was a totally unexpected journey. Um, I only started to read The Long Night after the birth of my youngest daughter and I was by then quite a mature girl of 36. And till then I hadn't really faced either of my parents' past for various reasons. And when I read The Long Night at the age of 36, really consciously as an adult for the first time, and I closed the book. Immediately I asked myself, or it came up within me almost, I always say it's like a phoenix, the fire rising within me. Are you going to close the book again for the next years that you live? And I felt that was like killing the voiceless yet again. And I felt my conscience wouldn't allow it. So that's when I embarked on the translation. And once I had the translation, I wanted the publication and it sort of grew grew from from there really because when I heard my father's words saying that he wrote it not just for the family but he wrote it for people to understand not just understand what he himself had been through but what his survivors and those that didn't survive had been through and also it was a witness it was an important document he he wrote it like a reportage so I felt I had to tell the world all that. It hadn't just been written for me to read at my pleasure, my perusal. It was an important document. So, yes. 
Yeah. My father's story, the the long night. He's uh, he describes what happened to him uh, from 1939 at the outbreak of the Second World War when he was 17 to 1945, and uh, my father was incarcerated at the age of 19 in seven concentration and labor camps and five transit camps over four and a half years. Um, between the ages of 17 and 19, he had to hide. And they were already taken to a trial labor camp um, together with his father, but they were released again after a few days. And he saw beards being pulled out in those oh. early years and uh, men being trampled on. So even though, you know, we say it, it sort of gets increasingly worse, it was hard and abnormal and cruel right from the very beginning. Um, and my father was liberated by the Americans at the Tutzinger Lake, which is close to Munich, uh, on the 30th of April, 1945. And uh, you know how we imagine liberation, that we're free and we're jubilant. There were many, many mixed feelings because he was alone. And uh, for those, I won't spoil it, but there were many twists and turns mm -hmm. uh, in his experiences. And even at the last minute, he was close to losing his life after having been through all that. And he described the reaction of the world, if I can find it very quickly. He says, we were solitary islands in a freezing foreign world. They felt very alone and they felt very uh, unwelcome and not understood. And that lasted for quite a while. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons people say survivors didn't speak. They would have spoken had they had people to listen to, uh, who would listen to them and hear them. But such wasn't the case. It, they, it fell on deaf ears. And he very he he had he went to a displaced persons camp in Feldafing. He was also hospitalised uh, for over six months, and then got on his feet and was very focused. Started to do his uh, A levels, matriculation in Germany. Applied for that and studied medicine and dentistry. And it was during his studies that his professor of psychiatry and neurology encouraged him to write down his story. Mm. So we, it's a full-length book, isn't it? I mean, Yes, it is a full. It's extraordinary uh, what he did. Yes. Book, yeah. Yes. And so this has, this has never left sort of, it's sitting on my shoulder, as it were. You must keep telling the world. And how do you tell the world today about something that happened so long ago? And why is it still relevant today? And in a way, that's how I embarked on the various journeys to, to show people that it is relevant today, particularly our youth. You put that so beautifully, all of it, um, wanting to tell your father's story and making it so clear. If you originally wrote it in German, is that right? The original manuscript was actually in Yiddish. On this Yiddish? Old -fashioned old-fashioned crinkly copy paper that oh. you and I are still familiar with mm -hmm. um but I it wasn't in any order and, and I, I can't really read Yiddish I mean I recognize the Hebrew letters but that was too big for me and also the strange thing about me was that I wanted ownership I didn't want to give it out to anybody else at that point in time I wanted to do it myself so then I felt I had to take it from the German, even though I was aware that obviously the Germans had edited it and I don't know. And it's still something that's left for me to do, really, to give it to somebody to translate and to compare the two texts.
the pure yeah. original and uh, the German. In a way, the actual manuscript is a precious thing to look at, isn't it? It's yeah. Almost, it, it's just something to hold in your hands of his and artwork. The letters must be very special. So it's another part of your jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? The picture, that manuscript. Very much. It really is something living to me. Yes. And in a way, The Long Night has his signature on it. And it meant that to me, that this is part of him living on separately from me, if you wish. But it is, yes, very much. And he died when I was 12, just 12. And I'm forever grateful. I didn't really, I didn't know about the Shoah. I didn't know what he'd been through. Um, and also that neither of my parents put this onto me. They didn't ask me to tell the world. They didn't ask me to do any of what I'm doing. And for that, I'm very, very grateful mm. that it comes from, I, would, I think that would be very damaging. On top of that, I grew up in Munich with an actual love of the city. So that's two Holocaust survivors bringing their children up in Munich and totally blissfully unaware of mm. Munich's part in history. But then you moved to Manchester. Yes, so. at the age of 13. It was a very healing time, really. Mm. And uh, that's where I met little Aviva and uh, her parents also, who were wonderful to us, very warm and very oh, welcoming. Right. You should say that's Aviva Darch, our um, yes. wonderful executive director of Jewish Renaissance. So, yeah, um, absolutely. So that's another journey. Another journey, yes. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yes, so I embark on many journeys and I think uh, my concentration span is sometimes short and that helps me to flip from one to the next. You mentioned the other things that I'm doing with The Long Night. I've done a transliteral animation that you've seen mm. of The Long Night. I'm also currently working on a full animation of oh. The Long Night which is a bit wider um, and a bit perhaps lighter. We, we're using the actual content of The Long Night, but we're mm. starting pre-war and we're taking some artistic license. And the reason that I have allowed that and allowed that to myself and to my father's memory is again, is bridging it with a general audience. I want to appeal to the large audience mm. who wouldn't normally be watching or interested in the Shoah, and again, who wouldn't necessarily be readers. I did want to ask you, who is doing the animation? Is it you? Are you actually doing it, or are you working with someone who is an artist? No, I work, yeah, work with someone. The, the, it's the royal we. Um, oh, right, I did just wanted to check. <laughs> yes, the, the transliteral animation was done uh, with people in Israel who did Rabbi Sachs's animation. Oh, that on Facebook. So, yes. What a day to remember him. Mm. Yes. And, and uh, I said, I was looking at him. I'm so sad that he's gone. I just can't believe yes, it. Because so, it's young, so, so young. So young. And uh, such, such a huge, huge personality. I said he was the wisest Jewish philosopher in our lifetime, really. And uh, so much to give globally. And globally, we have so much to learn from him. And the quote that stuck with me since last night was, people not like us, are people just like us. And in a way, this is the message that I always want to give on my journeys, particularly when I'm talking together with Derek, uh, mm -hmm. our, who is the grandson of uh, Nazi Karl Niemann, who was 
uh, overlooking labor and concentration camps like Auschwitz um, and telling his family that he was going to work. Um, and the reason I've teamed up with Derek is to show really that ordinary people are capable of evil and of course are capable of good. Mm. We don't have to be extraordinary to do extraordinary things. I think that's often a misconception. And also to show which the long night shows and I suppose Derek shows in his stories is often we speak about dehumanization. Jews were dehumanized, called vermin in order to be able to do these acts. But I say through having read The Long Night is that isn't necessarily so, that uh, people got pleasure from doing so because they treated, they knew we were humans and they wouldn't have oh. had the same reaction and the same feelings, the same in inverted commas pleasures if they hadn't felt we were humans and were a threat to them. And one example if of, of course is the Anschluss when uh, Germany annexes with Austria in 1938 and overnight life changes for Jewish Austrian professionals and they're made to clean the scrub, the mm -hmm. pavement in Austria, the famous scenes, and it becomes a laughing sport where the Austrians just come to watch and laugh. And so I want to teach really people about humanity and, and my passion is to educate and to educate those that are middle of the road, our youth and those that listen to us yes, to prevent that's... extremism. Yes, that's a, a different gloss completely that, you know, you're refuting dehumanisation. That's really interesting, yes. well thought out. Um, and you are still touring with Derek then, are you? I'm still now, unfortunately, now or fortunately, now it's virtually, yes. It's sort of stopped mm, of course. Corona I, I, started. And we've only just started now again mm. to uh, to do that. So I'm excited, yes, in, in Derby and Plymouth. And uh, mm. sort of we all have to readjust to the Zoom world. Although mm. I feel that obviously nothing, I'm stating the obvious, will replace the personal world, especially when people come up to us afterwards and engage with us and ask mm. questions and we grow and the question and answer session yes and i can see that completely but there are plus factors with zoom and you know you you could probably tour to australia as the pair of you couldn't you exactly well we were meant to go july uh of this year to toronto together oh. to a conference called liberation 75 so we were willing to uh, almost tour the world and we'd been mm. to switzerland together to an international school uh in september this year uh, last year, sorry. Yeah, we, we did actually travel right. far and wide. Yeah. I can see but that it's Of course, it's easier mm. via mm. Zoom, you know. You could get yeah. about. You really could get around the world. Right. So tell me two things. Before we get again to the, this Rob Rinder programme, which I realise must, if it's going out, the first half goes out tomorrow, the date is the date of Kristallnacht tomorrow. But it's yes. not what they've said, but I guess that's why it's now although it's in two parts and there'll be a second part the following week. Um, can we just talk about your mother? Yeah. Because this is this came later, didn't it? M much, much later, really. I was only aware of my mother's past about nine, ten years ago, mm. if that. Um, mm. No, my mother never told my father about her past because she mm. felt hers was lesser than his. And I told oh. my mum that human suffering is incomparable. Mm. Um so my mum 
lost my father and he never knew. And in a way of feeling their marriage, there must have been something missing or not, mm. that she never shared that fully with him. Um, she was very protective of my father. And uh, of course, their past came up in conversations every Sunday. This, my mum has got uh, two sisters here in Manchester and we meet every Sunday for many, many years and snippets would come up but never understood that they were actually in, you know, in the war involved directly with Nazis themselves. My mum was just 10 when she was sent away um, by her parents together with her older sister, Helen, and her younger brother, Joey, who was nine, Helen was 13, from their parental home in Saint-Junien, the southwest of France, to Switzerland, so that the children would be safe and escape the Nazi roundups that were very frequent uh, in France in, 19, in May 1944. The Nazis came and even picked children up from the streets. And so I know there's a very eloquent rendition of her story. I mean, it's short, what I've read, there may be more, being helped to escape to Switzerland and the brave woman who helped to rescue them, paying for it with her life. Yes. I don't think that's a spoiler of that. Um, so they're both, they went through so much, so young. Um, and then, so are you telling me that your mother never told your father her story? No. Gosh. And it took her a year to decide to marry my father. Oh. And my mother grew up in Strasbourg in France, in Alsace, you know, the French-German mm. border, Strasbourg. Yes. And um, they were introduced to each other by common friends, by mutual friends. And uh, my mother's re reservation was that she, could, she didn't want to live in Germany because of what had happened to mm. her. So and in particular, her. the man, who, the Gestapo man who questioned her, uh, any man of that age, she would transfix that face and that uniform and those boots onto that German man. So she, it was very difficult. Today, my mum actually is fine about being in Munich and actually enjoys being there, interestingly enough. That is, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's strange, isn't it? Because we sort of moved on in our relationship with Germany, thank goodness, which I think it would be part of what, you you know, you would sort of choose some reconciliation thing, isn't it, before the phrase was invented. But we are at a strange point where there's this sort of poison of anti-Semitism, which I, from my point of view, I think is something to do with social media and it's so easy to disseminate it. And if you don't want to be identified, you can still do it. And if you do, you can find like-minded individuals. So I think that is part of the curse of our time. And then there is this strange divisive politics, which we're just still seeing in America. Obviously, the, the country is very divided. Um, so it, you could see why anti-Semitism would flourish in this strange world of echoes and mistrust. And then we've got you, people like you we almost we've got a third generation haven't we you are working wonderfully towards all this and then now this journey with rob rinder can you tell me something about what what how did it come about what did you actually do what did it mean to you all the questions i would ask it probably came a little bit i wanted to also tell my mother's story to the world like my father and I felt I'd ignored my mother's story and I didn't have a physical book yet of my mother's story. And uh, one, my parents in my heart are equal to me. Yes, they're different, but my love for them is equally strong. 
And so I wanted also to tell my mother's story. I felt it was very important. Um, in part, it came about from my mother herself because two years ago, she expressed this urge to thank the Lord Mayor who saved oh. uh, her life. So yes, there was, like you mentioned, there was a young woman called Marianne Conn. She was 22 and she saved over 200 children's lives. She took the children from France across to Switzerland. Um, and unfortunately, my mum's group was her last group and oh. they raped and murdered Marianne. Oh. Um, the raping we just found out recently. But Marianne had something very special about her and uh, my mum would often speak now of, of Marianne but she also felt that she wanted to thank the Lord Mayor, who was a sort of double agent in as much as that he made a deal with the Gestapo uh, in June 44, or July already, to um, allow him to look after the children and would aid the Gestapo's escape back into Germany. Oh. And he had to sign a document. And the document was that if the Gestapo were to come back at any time, the Lord Mayor would have to give the children back to the Gestapo, and if they didn't, oh. and if they didn't stay in the place where they were meant to stay, you know, they could all be be shot. So, oh. so in a way, um, when my mother expressed that wish, um, I didn't really know how to go about it, and contacted the Lord Mayor's office, and at the same time heard about this program that they were doing, the BBC. Um, and so actually approached uh, Robert Rinder directly and the BBC oh. as well. And uh, it was uh, through the, yeah, through the BBC that uh, it came to fruition. I think for my mum, it was, it was very, very important. It validated her experiences and she felt that we all listened to her and heard her. And uh, she also was able to thank um, the uh, grandson of the Lord Mayor. Oh, the grandson, which was, yeah, which was wonderful, yes. Mm -hmm. And on the day that they met, the grandson's grandson was with him. So the grand the grandsons of the Lord Mayor's grandson, so many, many generations down, was a little boy of six. And it was the most surreal thing, Judy, that the whole day that we spent um in Anmas, in the town where my mother was imprisoned. My mum never saw the town, she was in prison there, but there was a commemoration when we returned to this town. This little boy took my mother's hand, age six, and he never left her. And I said to the little boy's grandfather, is he normally so outgoing? Because my mum is a stranger, he said no. And it was almost, I felt it was almost as if the Lord Mayor who saved my mother's spirit transcended. Mm. Although I don't normally believe in stuff like that, but you had to see it to believe it, that this little boy, and it soothed my mother and it calmed my mother and they didn't leave each other's side. Oh, that's the most beautiful story. Will we see that in the film? Uh, I'm not sure, it might be yes. cut out. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, if they were, it sounds to me as if, they, if they've got any of that in, if you, we didn't leave your mother's your side, that you, that will be there, at least a moment of it. 
So, so you, so you went across France all together with the camera crew and all the rest. So of I, I relived my mother's journey across France. Yeah, we started mm. to where my mother was evacuated mm. in 1939. My mum was five then, mm. together with her mother and two older siblings. Her father in 1939 joined the French army, mm. and so my grandmother travelled across France on her own for a few days. It took. And initially they were housed in a room all together with no running water. And they'd already had known running water and mm. toilets in the Oy. flat. So they all lived together and my grandmother had to get the water on the, in, in an attic on the fourth floor of the building. Mm. And um, that's how it started. And a year later, my grandfather returned and he had found them a flat and they stayed there. And my mother was quite happy there as a child because life was quite uh, was a lot outdoors and they were mm. free to run around till till the invasion of the germans became more visible mm. um uh, with the roundups like i mentioned also with the news that children and families were taken away mm. together with my grandfather losing his work and he had to be clever and how to get work and feed his family of course nobody was giving them and then my mum and her siblings had to go into hiding and you'll see some of that in the mm. film um in in the town that they lived they'd hid with farmers that eventually they'd hide in convents the convents were mm. actually very good to um the jews and uh, eventually my grandparents were encouraged by their doctor friend Dr. Epstein to send their children away, which he'd been saying repeatedly over many months. But uh, when they saw, I suppose, themselves, how this one and that one in the little town disappeared, mm. they had no choice and they had to entrust their children to strangers. So the 13-year-old girl, 10-year-old little Rene, which is my mum, and the nine-year-old little boy, Joey, left with, with a group leader and two other children left their parents. And... Uh, traveled through France and ended up in Lyon. And each time they went to a different town and a different mm. place, they had new group leaders. In, initially, before they reached Lyon, they were in a convent for two weeks where the nun tried to convert the children, oh. saying that, um, you know, when if the Nazis get them uh, and they die, then they'll be going to hell. And so they should be baptized so that they have a chance to go to heaven. So a child of 10, as you and I know, is not normally confronted with death, had to uh, make decisions like an adult, had to learn all of a sudden who to trust and who not to trust. But my mum said always, and I quote her words, my Judaism was very strong. She refused even though she was frightened and in unfamiliar surroundings with adults whom she didn't know could she or couldn't she trust, she refused to be converted. And, and they saw a girl, I have to add, who was 15 years old, who my mother said seemed to have lost her mind because she saw that uh, she saw the murder of her two parents mm -hmm. in front of her. And this girl had been converted. Um, so, yes, and then they had to hide in caves near Lyon, uh, near the station, because shootings, that the, the station was being bombed. And then they met Marianne, who took them across the rest. Well, not then. They, they went to Annecy, where it's already the French part of Switzerland. Mm. You see the mountains and the lakes and rivers. It's very, very picturesque. And the children seeing this, um, uh, Marianne Conn took them to the lake. Um, they felt, they saw, they felt 
they smelt their freedom. Um, they were then meant to go to another train to get nearer to the Swiss border, but um, that didn't materialize. My mother doesn't know why, and they went uh, with a driver. And they got stopped by that. So after a few miles, they got stopped by sniff of dogs and the Gestapo, initially just a car of a few Gestapo men, but that was followed by a whole troop of Gestapos. And uh, Marianne said uh, that they were children from workers from the railway station and they needed to get away from the bombings in Lyon. So she's taking care of them. She made up this story and uh, they're going to this holiday home. And they arrived then to this holiday home, still in the French part of the French Swiss. And the woman there said, oh, I'm not expecting a group of boys and girls. I'm only expecting boys. My mother later found out that she was a collaborator. Mm. So the older children were immediately taken to the prison in Anmas. My mother and her siblings stayed for a few hours in that place. And then my mother says in the early hours of the morning to her in the middle of the night, they were taken to prison. Mm. Um, and in prison, they met this Lord Mayor who'd, who'd, who made sure that they had food and who, who would give them a good word. Um, however, every day they were questioned, my mother and her two siblings by the Gestapo. What's your name? Are you Jewish? Mm. What's your parents' name? Where do your parents live? My mother said that they never revealed their parents' identity or location. In part, you could say it was courage, but my mother says very honestly that she was so frozen and she imagines her mm. siblings too, that she uh, didn't give, they didn't give their identity up. Mm. Helen, her older sister, managed to get a postcard out of prison, we think through the Lord Mayor, because she wanted to let her parents know, my mum's, their parents know that they never made it across to Switzerland. And Helen, aged 13, was savvy and clever enough to sort of write, write in a language without actually saying that they were in prison, but making the parents understood that um, mm. they never made it. Um, she also, when they were arrested by the Germans, Helen, the parents had given them some notes, swallowed these notes. So she was a very brave, sassy girl. She still is, she's nearly 90, Helen, and she's Gosh. full of life and vigor. Um, and so they stayed in that prison and uh, Marianne gave them a good word every day and, and reassured them she was extremely warm. Marianne had a chance to escape the, the Jewish French underground were constantly in touch with her and they, you know, to get out of prison, but she refused, she wouldn't leave the children. And uh, my mother saw Marianne return from a day's work in inverted commas, totally deformed, her head twice the size, oh. having been beaten and tortured. Oh. And she said to the children, eventually, children tell them the truth. I mean, this is where I tell you about the dehumanization isn't mm. true. The Gestapo knew they were Jewish children. What were they asking them for? And why were they asking? You know, every day the children were petrified that my aunt and my mother says before this questioning, every day they were dreading it. And then they were living with the aftermath. And then again, even before the 24 hours up the next day, they were questioned. Luckily, mm. they were only there a short while, a few weeks. And then the Lord Mayor made this pact that I told you about, and they went mm -hmm. to a place nearby Anmas called Bonsur Minage, 
and they were in a sort of holiday place there, but they were told not to escape because otherwise not only would the person be shot that escapes, but the whole group, including mm. the Lord Mayor. And eventually they were brought to Switzerland, to Geneva, which today, these two towns exist today, Anmas and Geneva. And uh, it, it's still, my mother was only reunited six months later with her parents. Her parents didn't yes. come to get them. They were brought back to the parents. So, you know, they were lucky that they were reunited, but uh, e each side parent and child went through a huge amount of, of trauma and of course my mother in her own words said she lost her childhood so when you went back I mean I know every story as I said at the beginning is it was extraordinary There's, they're all different and they're all got they're all got similarities how was she reliving that was it closure did she talk about it all the way because you how long were you away on, on this trip um, three days. So I I was actually separated from my mother because it was television. When oh. we met, when I had to relive my mother's journey, oh. and at the end of my the journey, when after, so the we we met up in Anmas, the town where she was imprisoned. After I'd been to prison myself, I entered oh. the prison. What? In the film? Physically. Oh. In the yeah, physically, and and you'll see that, I presume, yeah, because that's totally. Um, that, that that to me was was really the worst and and i was surprised really maybe shows my naivety and i'm being polite about myself how powerful that was to mm. relive my mother's step totally taught me another dimension about my mother and another dimension about understanding what the people had been through to go in her footsteps i almost felt whilst i was in prison i said the language that i'm using shouldn't be a normal language. I almost felt that I wanted to have a different language to express that because the trauma, the barbarism, the cruelty was so high that I wanted to express it in different words so that we would all feel that terror that that little girl had to endure. Which you clearly did. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of fairly speechless, it, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to ask you to do the journey and to separate from your mother. So the the scene that you what you're telling me about with the grandson that was after all this. After yes, that. you're right. Yes, yes, it was. Yes, sorry. Yes, yes. No, no, don't, don't be sorry. No, it's just so. In fact, it must have meant so much more to both. To both was well, obviously meant a lot to her, but it, you could see it in a different light because of what you'd been through. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so viewers will. You can't share it, can you, exactly? I mean, you're just... I think just that's a... why these podcasts are important, to almost mm. explain each thing, what it meant. Yes, yes. You're, you're transported on this journey, but then I think you reflect and think afterwards mm. because in the film you're running along with these people, you become mm. witnesses of these people's journeys and you're going, like you said, on a journey. But to really reflect, to have the feelings, I suppose, mm. unless I'm able to express them, and the interesting thing is about myself, even though I'm a very emotional person and I think I'm relatively okay with words and speaking, I was actually numb. I was very numb because my levels of emotions were so heightened. The last time mm. I felt like that is when my dad died, where I couldn't actually cry, mm. but I was at such a level where I froze. And in the prison scene, I actually then collapsed in the end. But till then, I was actually totally 
uh, verklemmt is the Yiddish, you know, yeah. almost totally uh, close. tense, close, but also mm. I would say frozen, that it was so severe, the emotion, it was on a, on a different level. Mm. Must have made you empathise with your mother even more, because she really did, you know, you've told me that she was numb and when she was being interrogated, it sounds like it must have brought you even closer to her I, yes I, I have a lot more uh, understanding of my mother and hope uh, i might not always show it to her she'd say but my feeling towards her is i see renee the little 10 year old girl mm. which i never saw before obviously um you know mother is a mother and often our our um my view of her persona i are clouded by her mothering me never did i have the capacity mm to understand what mother, what Rene had been through before becoming a mother, mm. or had the, the empathy and the capability of doing so. And this journey gave me that. So I'm forever grateful to the BBC and uh, Robbie Rinder. And in particular, I'm also grateful, I have to point out David Vincent, the documentary maker who was with us, because he really brought out the best in us. He was extremely sensitive um to have around and uh i've just never come across really somebody like that he just knew what to ask when to ask what to mm. say when to say and that was very very helpful and at first um i kept going on that the minute i'm in Anmat, i want to join my family because my husband was coming because there was a big ceremony there, which I didn't mention. They made my mother an honorary citizen. Oh. And my mother, my mother spoke because unbeknownst to us, every year on the eighth of May, they remember their Lord Mayor what he did, and also Marianne Con. They mention her, and so my mother. We were all part of this ceremony, and my sister came from Israel, and my brother and his wife from London. So we were all there as a family, um, supporting. And I said to the BBC, I want to join them, join them. But having relived that with my BBC family, I interestingly enough wanted to, it was almost hard for me to make that transition. That almost became my safety cocoon, my safety bubble, what I'd been through, because it was such a raw experience. It was a very, when it's to some, when it's somebody so close to you, a mother, an immediate family member, you're very, very raw. And of course it took time to, adjust and readjust for many weeks after i would say and for me i suppose i live it you know I, um, mm. as you can see because i do all these things it's very much part of who i am yeah. you are yes I, I noticed that you say after the birth of your third child when you started looking into your father's story um you, you were a gp up till then you've just there's just yeah. a line that says i never practice as a gp again, again. Um, but that's part of you. I mean, that you know, you, you know, you're not your wife, your mother. You're all these different things. Your daughter, but you are also you were. You're a doctor. Yes. Um, why did you never practice again? Was it something to do with this, or because you had three children, or you two? Actually, two had different? four. I actually had four. four Sorry. Four. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's okay. I've got four girls. Medicine, we just talked about, was very much something that my dad encouraged me to do. So I wanted to do it from being very young. Mm. And I actually told him that I was frightened of blood. And he always said, if this, he always quoted to me, if this female doctor can do it, you can do 
do it. This female doctor was actually a bureaucratic doctor. She was never a a, a people, uh, you know, a paper pusher doctor. Mm. Not that, not that that's any lesser. And um, so I felt I wanted to do it, and I also felt that I wanted to help people. I I had lived with my parents. My dad worked tirelessly for the community, helping people, Jewish and non-Jewish, mm. visiting. I don't know how he had the time and even the energy. Um, so. I very much wanted to emulate this man as, as the helper. He was my hero, especially to a girl of, of, of 12 and younger, you know, fathers and daughters. And I wanted to emulate him. Mm. So I wanted to be this doctor. And uh, I had my first daughter a month before my second MB, before my big medical exams. Mm. So that was very difficult. And my mum helped me to bring up uh, our eldest daughter, Orly. Um, and then it, it was hard, that balance to, although many women thankfully do do it um, and find it more manageable to do between family and, and medicine. So I actually qualified as a GP and then had my youngest daughter, took maternity leave, found another job. And then two weeks before getting the other job close to home in Salford, I, I got cold feet and decided no. And uh, it sort of the holocaust sort of it chose me i chose it it was a very symbiotic it wasn't it wasn't an intellectual journey or decision it was all very emotional and it's it, i didn't have a plan as such it sort of just grew off mm. what i had to do and and it, and my family would say it took over but um for me it's cathartic and it's healing even though i'm very nervous before i speak um every time I get extremely nervous not so much in interviews but when I do this mm. um, no. monologue I'm very emotional my I, I feel myself burning I feel myself drying up I just got a what apple watch and it told me to breathe so even the watch <laughs> can see I'm nervous which and I don't put don't put it on anymore I don't like anybody substantiating my feelings and um what I find the balm to the wound is when young people come up or anybody and say, you know, it makes them think and, and that, they'd, that they've heard stories like that and what else can they do and what can be done to stand up and speak out and how can we, and if we lay the seeds for that, I mean, I know I'm not going to change the world on my own, but the, everybody can do their bit, then that, that is, is like a plaster to the wound. But it needs it needs replastering regularly. It doesn't it doesn't stay on very long, unfortunately. I think I can see that that linking through to younger people, children, children as really as young as your mother. I mean, we're going around in this huge, rather beautiful yeah. circle here, and um, that means I think it does because we we know that your mother's generation won't be there the first hand. Um, it, it says a loss. It sounds like a kind of truism, doesn't it? That you know there will be no one there who was a first-hand witness. But you are so deeply embedded in it. It comes over to me now. I mean, I can see your face, but I'm sure anyone just listening to you will be able to, to feel it. And I can, you know, just the story you told about the little boy, the, the mayor's great, great grandson, is it? Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. great, great. I can't but, even. How many greats there are? You know, putting yes, his exactly. hand into your mother. The links are there. I feel I feel comforted by talking to you that the stories will live on because it's something I worry about. Um, mm -hmm. I feel that people like you and people like Derek can can tell the stories, can stop help to stop 
you know, this is terrible venom of anti-Semitism spreading. Um, so thank you so much. I really want to thank you for this wonderful conversation. I can see your beautiful smile. I hope people can hear it. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind. Yeah. yeah. And it's very interesting to talk today on the day of the Festival of Remembrance. Um, 